Thank you again for joining me here on the Freed Thinker podcast. As always, I'm your host, Tyler Vela. We're going to take a little bit of a break from the previous series that we have been going through on the supposed Bible atrocities, uh, where we uh, are almost done looking at slavery in the Old Testament. Um, With moving and with a newborn and working through grad school and full-time work and everything, uh, I just don't have quite the time uh, to spend in the research side um, for, for the next episode that I've been working on, so I just need a little bit more time on developing that. I also have some upcoming guest appearance uh, on a couple podcasts that I'll be telling you about as they come up. So uh, you'll be hearing me on another uh, few other podcasts, being interviewed, being on discussions, uh, and then also starting up a new joint podcast uh, with my good friend Owen Pond. Um, so you'll, you'll hear a little bit more about that coming up as well. So what we're going to do on this episode and maybe the next couple is going to be a little bit uh, of a break from the series that we've been going through. I'm going to do uh, this podcast today, which we'll talk about in just a second. And then I'm going to jump into uh, what Owen, my friend that I just mentioned, actually calls a mission leak. Uh, it's going to be a little bit off course from normal topics, at least for the for the bulk of them. Normally, I'm engaging here uh, with secularism and atheism and, and, and philosophical naturalism and those kind of debates with unbelievers. But this is an apologetics uh, and philosophy podcast. And so what I want to do uh, is I've been in, in a lot of discussions lately dealing with uh, Molinism. Anyone, anyone involved in the... In the topic of apologetics is is probably familiar with William Lane Craig and his position of Molinism uh, and the debates that arise around Calvinism and Arminianism. Um, so we're going to do a, a few episodes, probably more than a few episodes, dealing with, with that because I already have a lot of the research done for that. It doesn't take uh, a ton of uh, extra time. To record these shows because I have I already have so much of the work done. Um, so we'll be we'll be going through a series on that, going through uh, the 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 quote unquote five points of Calvinism, the tulip uh, acronym, kind of going through those those doctrines of grace and and why those are important to understand when we're talking about apologetics. Um, why those are an important foundation. So we'll get to that here uh, in the next few episodes. But this episode, I'm still going to be dealing a little bit with the skeptics, not quite the objection to the biblical morality. But here, I want to talk about um, one of the importances of philosophy. What's what's one of the roles of philosophy? Because when you talk to a lot of these new atheists, right, these internet infidel types, um, they're going to give the these these protestations against using philosophy right philosophy is this quote-unquote woo um, that you're just making things up that you that that logic isn't evidence and, and all this kind of stuff and so they really disparage philosophy which is ironic because they want to come across as the rational ones right the the brights the logical thinkers the ones who who use reason and logic 
which is just doing philosophy. So that's bizarre. Um, but what they what what they need to realize is that philosophy allows us to do what's called disambiguation. Hence the title of this episode: Weapons of Mass Disambiguation. Right to disambiguate something is to be able to understand and to and to divide and to talk about the separate parts and to to separate complex concepts that may otherwise be uh, confusing or or they're easily con, uh, easily conflated. Um, they might be associated with each other, uh, but really to to take those concepts apart to disambiguate. Uh, something to add clarity to it to understand it and so disambiguation is going to be something that's really important when you're going to have uh, reasonable and logical discourse let me give you an example of two concepts that are hard to disambiguate uh, two concepts are indeterminacy and something being uncaused Right, a lot of times when we get into these issues uh, of apologetics, we start talking about. Uh, it always comes up in the topic of the kalam, which some of you know. I'm not the I'm not the biggest fan of the kalam, uh, but this topic comes up, and and a lot of times the the skeptic or the unbeliever uh, will will try to say that things like quantum indeterminacy undermine premise one of the kalam that whatever begins to exist have a cause and they're going to say well look if you look at if you look at a vacuum chamber uh there there's this there's these uh the um uh, what are they called? There's these artificial particles, or uh, there's these particles that kind of uh, spin off in, in, into existence out of the, the quantum fluctuation. They'll, they'll randomly spin off into existence, and then they'll go right back out into existence. They'll get absorbed back into the vacuum. Um, the problem is, is that they're confusing something being indeterminate with something being uncaused. Right, something can be completely, fully undetermined. It can be completely indeterminate, but also still be caused. Right? This is this is this is the, the one of the major problems. So X can be indeterminate with to effects P and Q, but X is still the cause of either P or Q. That is, that is in some in some condition, uh, X is going to lead to a cause. It's just indeterminate which cause it's going to lead to, or sorry, which effect it's going to lead to, right? So indeterminacy and something being uncaused are actually two different things that are often conflated. And disambiguation helps us to get rid of the ambiguity between those two things. That's disambiguation. That's what it helps us with, right? A common one that comes up in these conversations with atheists is supernatural and magical. Now, anyone who's ever been in these types of conversation knows that a f one of the favorite radical, rhetoric uh, points from these online atheists is that God is magical, right? To appeal to the supernatural is just to appeal to magic, right? Now, uh, William Lane Craig and, and many others uh, I have included have pointed out some of the irony of this um, when dealing with, with some atheists and some skeptics who are, who are willing to say things like the universe just popped into existence uncaused. That seems much more magical uh, than anything else. That's, that seems worse than magic, actually. Um, but there, there's, there's some pretty important differences between supernatural and magic. 
right? So the definition, uh, common definition of magic is the power of apparently influencing the course of events by using mysterious or supernatural forces. Now, magic, what's assumed in there, is a human activity. It, it's the power that we are exercising in trying to control the course of events through things like spells or charms or, or incantations. It's an attempt to employ a certain method to control nature, right? It's, it's a human trying to control a supernatural force to affect or influence the course of human events, right? That isn't the same thing as saying all supernatural is magic, right? So, so that's not the same thing as saying that God is the best explanation is an appeal to magic, Right? That might be a really fun uh, rhetorical trick uh, that, that might be something that you know, gets a rise out of your fellow atheists at your conferences, but that's just, not, that's just dealing with a straw man. You're not dealing with the concept of God as a supernatural entity that any thoughtful Christian is going to hold. You're not going to find any theologian or really even any philosopher saying that God is magic. Right? They've, they've been able to disambiguate those two concepts. So insofar as you keep defending that, that conflation between supernatural and magical, you're really just dealing with a straw man of your own making. You're dealing with your own concept. Now, I was in a conversation with someone really recently, and they said, well, you can't tell me what I mean. That's true. I can't tell you what you mean. But you also can't tell me that your definition is what it has to mean, and therefore I have to do that, and therefore theism is false. right? If you're going to try to engage with theism, if you're going to try to engage with Christianity, if you're going to try to have a reasonable discourse with me and say that my beliefs are false or wrong or invalid or whatever, you need to deal with my beliefs. Right? You can't say, well, I don't like your concept of your belief, so we have to use my concept of my belief and on, of your belief. And on, and on my concept, look how stupid it is. Well, that's just a straw man. I mean, I could say that, that atheism is the position that all theists are geniuses and that we're right about everything. And therefore, for, for atheists to say that theists are wrong is to be contradictory and hypocritical. Right? That's, just, that's just not how reasonable discourse happens. You need to use the concept and the language of the position that you're trying to engage with. And in that case, we don't mean the same thing by supernatural and magical. We have two separate concepts for those things. Now, there's another issue that comes up with this, and that is the difference between something that's an explanation and the essence of something, for example. So a lot of times you're going to get uh, the inability to dis disambiguate concepts like God and leprechauns or God and the, f the flying spaghetti monster, right? Uh, if, you, if any of you listen to the Unbelievable podcast with Justin Briley, he had one recently where Michael Ruse was on. And, and Michael Ruse is, is, is an atheist, atheistic philosopher. And he basically says, look, you know, those flying spaghetti monsters, those, those leprechauns, those, those are silly. He recognizes that those are silly and that theology is a serious topic. He can say that because he's, he's learned to disambiguate those type of silly concepts. And he, and he gives some examples of it. For example, uh, in the problem of pain, God is, God is a possible explanation uh, as a resolution for the problem of pain. We're going to see some more of these going forward. But, but there's, a, there's some major differences, for example, between God and leprechauns or God and the flying spaghetti monster, right? Leprechauns, for example, are finite beings. They're invented in Ireland 
and they have no philosophical relevance whatsoever, right? Leprechauns, as we're gonna see in a minute, are ad hoc explanations. It's, it's something that we invented to explain and fit the data uh, rather than the other way around. Now, they have no philosophical relevance. They don't explain any, uh, any foundational aspects of reality. So leprechauns have zero importance. Right. So, and we and we know the history of their invention. Uh, flying spaghetti monster, for example, is an incoherent concept. So, spaghetti. We know what spaghetti is. Spaghetti is is a man-made uh, food. It's a pasta dish. It's made from you know wheat and olive oil and egg, I think. And I've never actually made pasta, but I'm guessing that those are some of the things you use in it. Uh, and 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 it's trying to say that that spaghetti, which is an inanimate human-made object. Is a flying is a flying monster, right? So not only can spaghetti not fly, that's not in the nature of spaghetti. It's not personal. That's not in the nature of spaghetti. Uh, it's not. It, it, it's finite, uh, and it's not a monster, right? A monster is a. Besides the fact that monster is kind of an ambiguous statement. I mean, what makes something a monster? Uh, we usually think of morally bad, scary stuff like that. Um, the concept itself of those three terms put together is an incoherent concept. Uh, they're logically contradictory. They're logically incoherent. It's not just that it's false. It's not just that it's not instantiated here within the universe. It's that the concept itself is contradictory and incoherent. Uh, it doesn't make any sense. Um, and then, and then, what happens normally in these types of cases is that this, is that the skeptic will then make it even more ad hoc. They'll say, "Oh well, well, this flying spaghetti monster is, is invisible, and it's eternal." And it's transcendent, and it's omnipotent, right? And they're they're basically, in order to make it not incoherent, they're ascribing attributes of the concept of God to it. So in the very end, what you really have is God just by a different name. So you have all the features of God, but by a different name, and you no longer mean a flying spaghetti monster, right? You mean God. You're just calling it something else. You've worked yourself backwards into the concept of God. In, in trying to get around this this incoherent thing, so so they're they're not able to disambiguate those things. The other problem is when we understand the 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 different features of an explanation. Right, we we normally talk about three different three different aspects of an explanation. That is explanatory power. How well does it explain a certain set of data? Explanatory scope. Right, how many different sets of data does it explain? And the, the, the amount of ad hocness that it has, right? How, how much you're altering your concept just to make it force fit with the data, right? How, how are you shoehorning it into the data to make it work, right? Uh, well, let's, let's, look at, let's, look at, let's look at God on this. God has incredible explanatory power. So when we look at individual fields, why is there something rather than nothing? Well, God is the concept of a necessary being and the necessary creator, right? He, he, is, he is the ground of all being. Why is there something? Because God is the creator, right? That's, that's a valid explanation. It has, it has strong explanatory power. We're going to see some of the problems with some naturalistic theories, uh, but God is a good explanation for why is there something rather than nothing. Again, you might not think that it's true, right? But it doesn't mean that it's trivial, Right? Just because you don't think something is true doesn't mean that it's nonsense or doesn't mean that it's, that it's trivial. It doesn't mean that it's meaningless or doesn't mean that it has no explanation whatsoever. 
right? Now, now we can get into the, the argument about whether, whether any of these are true or false later, but the point is that it has good explanatory power. So another one, why is the universe finely tuned for life, right? In all other analogous experiences where we have uh, improbability to the infinitesimal extreme that we have in the universe, right? I, I, I often, I often uh, argue basically um, we don't actually even have anything in our realm of existence that is to that infinitesimally small improbability. I mean, we are talking about like 10 to the power of 125 to the power of 120 type of improbabilities. We don't have that type of thing. I mean, there's, there's 10 to the power of 80 uh, atoms in the entire universe, right? We're talking magnitudes of, 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 of magnitudes of magnitudes more improbable uh, than, than, you know, choosing one atom of the entire universe at random, right? We don't, we don't really have anything in experience and anything that even approaches improbable uh, in, in, our, in our universe, anything that approaches a certain type of improbability, we always ascribe intentionality to. Always, universally, without exception, we ascribe intelligence. We, we ascribe design as the explanation. So when we look to the universe, right, again, you might not think that it's true, but it has really strong explanatory power. How about that the, that nature is ordered by a realm of transcendent, immaterial, spaceless, timeless, immutable, eternal, absolute, and authoritative laws of logic, right? Laws of logic are principles of thought that govern all of reality. Why is it that, that the laws of logic, the laws of thought govern reality? Well, because God is mind, because mind is foundational. That's a great explanation. That, that has strong explanatory power. Again, you might not think it's true. You might not. You might think that there's a better explanation. Although we'll see that in a second. That's pretty problematic. But you can't say that it's trivial. You can't say that it's meaningless, right? It's a. It's a. It's a valid explanation. It has good explanatory power over why that is. Why is rape wrong, right? We'll, we'll talk about objective morality in, in other episodes we've talked about before. I'll mention briefly here in a second. But why is rape actually wrong? Not just why don't we like it. Not just why is it not beneficial. Not just, you know, why does society teach that it's not that it's not okay. But why is rape in and of itself, because the act itself, wrong? Well, God is the great is the grounds of objective moral values and duties, and humans are created in his image. That's a good explanation. It's, it has good explanatory power over the question, why is rape wrong? Again, you might not think it's true, but it's a good explanation. The, adding kind of these up in, in a cumulative case shows that God also has really good explanatory scope, right? So in, in physics, we talk about a theory of everything, one theory to, to unite uh, the large and the small. Right? To, to un something has good explanatory scope if one theory explains multiple sets of data. Right, You don't need five theories anymore to explain each one. You can have one theory that unifies all of these different sets of data. And here we can see, well, God 
being having explanatory power over all of these different foundational aspects of reality has really strong explanatory scope over what we consider some of the most foundational aspects of reality, right? He has he is a unified explanation for all of those uh, things that I've listed above, plus a whole ton more, right? I, I only listed I only listed four. We could go we could go into dozens and dozens of these things. So God is not only has good explanatory power, but he has good explanatory scope, right? The flying spaghetti monster doesn't have any of these things. Flying spaghetti monster can't explain why there's something rather than nothing unless you ascribe to him attributes of God, right? Attributes that we already just historically consider attributes of God, right? It's also not ad hoc, right? We don't alter our conception of God to fit the data, God as uh, immaterial, personal, transcendent, holy, etc., has remained basically unchanged for about three millennia, despite all the advancements and discoveries of science and secularism, for example. Now, it, it's it's often uh, when theologians are actually trying to accommodate their theology uh, that it gets really bizarre. So, if you think of like process theology. Or you think of God, uh, the theology that says God is like a mega manufacturer tinkering with things. This is when you get into really weird things. It's actually, it, it's actually when you look at the history of theology, it's divergent theology that becomes really ad hoc uh, to try to fit the data. Whereas kind of just historic, orthodox, run-of-the-mill theology proper has always been fit the data pretty well. Uh, it's always had pretty good explanatory power, explanatory scope. It's whenever you're trying to veer off uh, that the train goes off the tracks. Now, again, you may not think that God is the best explanation, but what's the alternative, right? Uh, what, what's, what's, what's the price value of denying that God is the best explanation? Well, for naturalists, they've had a hell of a time trying to come up with a rival theory. Right? And when they do, they often have to come up with a bunch of little theories that are so extremely ad hoc or flat out untenable and out of accord with human experience when they're pushed to their logical conclusions. Right? So let's look at a couple of these. What's the type of explanation that atheists have given for why there's something rather than nothing? Well, you can listen to Tracy Harris when she's interviewed and when she came on with Matt Dillahunty onto, onto the, the, the Thinking Atheist podcast, where, where she asks, you know, why isn't, why isn't it just nature? Why can't we say nature just is? Right? Well, that's just begging the question. That's, that's just appeal to brute fact. That's just saying, well, I don't, I, I don't like having to think of an answer for why, why, the, why nature is. So I'm just going to say that nature just is. It just is. Right. Every single time we look at nature, yeah, it looks um, it, it, it looks contingent. We know that it started a finite time ago in the past, but it just is. It just happened. It just nature just is. Right. Why do you have to appeal to to the supernatural? Why do you have to appeal to God? Nature just is. Well, we appeal to the supernatural because it's a valid explanation for the question why nature is. Right? Saying that nature just is actually is the non-answer. Uh, it, it, it's it's the answer that that's trying to shun the question, trying to shun a valid question. What about fine tuning? Well, to get around fine tuning, they basically invented the multiverse, right? And why do they invent the multiverse? Well, because they need to increase their probabilistic resources. If you have enough universes, one of the universes is bound to be a lot like this one, right? 
That's just entirely ad hoc, right? It, it, it's like saying, well, if I have enough angels dancing on the pins of heads, I'll crochet a quilt, right? It, it, it's, it's not, uh, it doesn't have very much explanatory power. You're just, you're just creating a theory ad hoc to try and force the data through. We have, we have no direct evidence of a multiverse, Right, we can, and, and I'm not sure that we can. It's 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 a sphere outside of our universe. It could function by different laws of nature that we have no ability to observe, and that's fine. I'm not saying I'm not saying the multiverse is false. I'm just saying the theory is invented in an entirely ad hoc way, and when you use it to ex- try to explain fine tuning, you're just giving an ad hoc explanation. It doesn't it doesn't actually answer the question. There there there's the other example where we're going to say well. Uh, we shouldn't be surprised to find a universe that that fits with life because because if we weren't in that universe, right? If that universe didn't exist, we wouldn't be around to notice that we were surprised, right? Uh, which which is pretty ridiculous. I think it was John Leslie who gave the example of, of the firing squad. And he says, imagine that you're standing in front of a firing squad of a hundred trained trained marksmen. You know, they're they're ten paces away. There's no way they can miss. You're blindfolded. You hear ready, aim, fire, and you hear just the roar of all the guns. And you open your eyes, and you notice that you're still alive. Now. What type of explanation do you give? Do you give the explanation it's a put-up job, right? They, they all had blanks in their guns. They all missed intentionally, right? Maybe they all fired into the ground, I, I, whatever, some type of intentionality. Or do you say, well, there's a nearly infinite number of universes. And given the probability, there's going to be one universe where all of the bullets misfire. And considering that I'm in that, that I'm around to notice that I'm surprised, I must live in that universe. Right? We would never accept that type of explanation in any other realm of discourse. We, we you know, imagine going to the IRS when the IRS is auditing you. You've, you've you've hit all your money and say, well, with an infinite number of universes, there is one universe where your computers ha- have made a calculation error. And since you know we're surprised that there's this calculation error, then we must live in that universe where there actually was a calculation error. No one's going to take you seriously, right? No, try, try going into any card game with a gunslinger and win 50 hands in a row with a full house. They're going to shoot you, right? No one takes this type of multiverse ad hoc explanation seriously. We always assume intentionality, always, in every case, right? So the naturalistic explanations are not doing so well in this, in this realm. What about, what about objective morality? What about rape is wrong? Well, we've talked about in other shows and I've had articles on this, and you can write me, and we can have this conversation. Uh, atheistic or naturalistic morality is always, when pushed to its logical extension, always just ends in nihilism. It always just ends in brute will to power, what it is that we prefer, uh, and, and nothing is actually right or wrong, right? Rape actually isn't wrong. The answer to the question, why is rape wrong, is on naturalism, well, rape isn't actually wrong. We just don't like it. Right? It doesn't bring about human for flourishing. Well, is human flourishing good? No, we just prefer it. Right? It always just comes down to nihilism, and we have to really hope that the powers that be are seeking our good and not our destruction. Right? Because it's ultimately going to come down to the will to power. Right? So they don't have a good explanation for objective moral values and duties. Yes, I know that was extremely brief, uh, but I touched on this in so many other places that, I, that I, I'm not really going to go into depth on it. Uh, you have other problems that come about with naturalism, such as chemical determinism, 
right? Our minds just are our brains. I, I remember also going back to Tracy Harris on, on, on uh, uh, The Thinking Atheist uh, when talking about dying brains. She says something like, dying brains, why trust them? Well, by that same rationale, many have pointed out chemical determinism. Why trust them, right? If my mind is chemically determined, why do I trust that it gives me true information? Maybe my brain is chemically determined to give me false information, right? Why, why should I trust something that's chemically determined? Why do I have to, right? Alvin Plantinga points out he has this, this evolutionary argument against naturalism and saying, well, maybe, maybe we evolved... Maybe delusion, mass delusion, mass, mass hallucination was actually more beneficial for the species, right? So we're all living in mass hallucination, right? Why can we trust our brains? Why do we trust, why do we trust our brains that we're, we're hardwired by, by chance, right? Why, uh, if, you're, if your brain is chemically determined, why trust it, right? You can, you can apply that type of hyper-skepticism that they normally try to apply to theism, and you can apply it right back to naturalism, and there's all kinds of problems. So what's what's the normal? What's the default defense then? Well, it's what what I've come to call naturalism of the gaps, and you'll see me argue this a lot in a lot of the forums. Naturalism of the gaps is basically there, there's that little cartoon where you have some scientists drawing on on the board. And there's a complicated equation on one side, and there's a complicated equation on the other side, and the original says uh, then a miracle occurred in the middle. And it normally says, you might need to think through step two. It's a pretty funny comic. Well, naturalism of the gap basically says, well, then something natural happened, right? It, it, it just assumes that any naturalistic explanation is preferable to any supernaturalistic explanation, right? So that any data that's ever going to be allowed has to already fit a naturalistic scheme. Right, so any, any data that's ever going to be allowed in, into an explanation has to already be part of the natural evidence, which reinforces that naturalism is true, which reinforces that then something natural occurred. Right? Well, that's just begging the question. Right? And it's also done in, in, a, in a kind of way that insulates them from, from any type of, of critical evaluation of their views. All right, so so I, I I commonly ask the question of my naturalist friends: Can you give me one piece of evidence that that could ever undermine your naturalism? Right? Could ever show that naturalism is false and that some type of supernaturalism is true? What kind of evidence would you allow? Right? Uh, and and from there it it just they just struggle. It just goes into absurdities. So you're going to hear things like, well, if the stars rearrange to spell out. Uh, I am Yahweh, I am your God, or something like that, then I would believe. Really? Would you really? What? Because I asked them, what about that would tell you that God is the explanation for that? Right? Because you have to remember, the chances of that happening are actually more probable than the fine-tuning. So they, they already automatically have to say that what would convince them is actually something that's already more probable, uh, mathematically speaking, than the universe itself that we find, right? So, so if they're going to say they're, they're convinced to the point of this, let's just call it 75, I mean, it's astronomically, we're just going to call it 75% probability just for easy numbers. If they're convinced by this thing that has 75% probability, uh, well, I guess I should invert that. 25% probability of actually happening. 
right? Why aren't they convinced by this thing that actually happens that has a 1% probability of actually happening, right? So, so they're, they're already stuck in this problem of saying that something that's already more probable than, than, the, than, than the fine tuning of the universe would convince them. So why doesn't the fine tuning convince them? That's a separate problem. But, but why is it that the best explanation for that is God? Why wouldn't they say, oh, well, we have all these other naturalistic explanations. Maybe, maybe I'm delusional, right? Maybe, maybe I'm just having a mass solution, hallucination, right? Maybe, and we and we hear this one. Maybe uh, the human mind is a pattern-forming machine, and so it looks for patterns where there aren't one. Have you ever seen a face in the mountainside, right? Not looking at Mount Rushmore, but just a, 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 you know, you you see a face in a rock formation. Well, maybe. That's what I actually saw in, in the stars, and it, and it wasn't actually there. Maybe there's a super powerful race of aliens who have learned how to harness the stars and can move them around. They're playing a prank on us, right? Maybe we're in the matrix, right? Why, why, would, why would the stars rearranging tell you that there's a supernatural explanation? Why wouldn't you go for a natural explanation, right? If they're gonna say that any naturalistic explanation is preferable to any supernaturalistic one, then what type of evidence could they have that would convince them when really any evidence they give, you could give these delusion, delusion, hallucination, aliens, matrix, pattern forming, or the end all be all, right? The, the quote unquote, the more humble position, right? The truly humble position of saying, I don't know, but hopefully science will find it out one day, right? Because it's always better to say, I don't know, than appeal to a quote unquote sky daddy. Right, so why is it if the stars rearrange? Why are they appealing to a sky daddy instead of saying I don't know, but hopefully science will find out one day? Because that's that's really the more humble position, right? You can see that naturalism of the gaps, when it, when naturalism is held this way, is entirely circular, and it can't actually allow itself to be critically challenged. And so what this does is that any, any argument or any position that doesn't fit with their naturalism is all conflated together. They can't disambiguate. Within that naturalistic sphere, they can't tell the difference between flying spaghetti monster and a leprechaun and God, right? They put all those things in the same bucket because they're not able to disambiguate those concepts because they all fall outside uh, the realm of, of the natural, right? Uh, there, there's, there's a, a, a funny thing in the, in the Greg Bonson Gordon Stein debate, uh, where, where uh, Stein is asking uh, Bonson to give any other example of an immaterial object besides God, and God, and, and Bonson says, well, the laws of logic. Gets a really big laugh, because Bonson or, or, or Stein had just agreed that the laws of logic are immaterial. And Stein comes back and says, well, then are you saying that God is like the laws of logic? Are you saying the same thing? And Bonson says, well, no, only someone who's not able to, un to, to disambiguate concepts, basically, would even think that just because there's two things that are supernatural, they must be the same thing, right? Only someone who thinks that anything that isn't natural all falls in the same bucket, right, would be able to make that type of conflation. Uh, here we see that over and over and over again in online uh, atheistic type of uh, blogosphere, internet infidel types, these, these atheistic fundamentalists who are not able 
to disambiguate concepts. The ability to divide and clearly understand concepts that may be similar or related and to understand those differences is something that escapes them. But it's something that shouldn't escape us. It's something that we should strive to understand. We should be critical thinkers. We should be clear thinkers. We should be able to disambiguate complex concepts. And here's the rub. We should be able to do it across the board, not just with our own viewpoint. We shouldn't just be able to nuance our own viewpoint. We should be able to understand and nuance the viewpoints from those uh, on the side that we disagree with. When, I t- when I'm looking at an atheist, when I'm looking at a naturalist, I, I, I need to be able to disambiguate and nuance the differences of their beliefs and their systems. Right? I, I can't just say, well, I define naturalism as the belief that there's a God, but the, the, the suppression of it, but really the secret belief that, that, all, athe- that all theists are true. Right, and that's 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 what naturalism is, and that's that's my definition of it. I, I, you know, I don't care what you say your definition is, Mister Atheist. That's my definition of it, and therefore it's false. And then look how stupid naturalism is, and you're stupid for believing it. Right, that's the type of rhetoric that 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 so many Christians come across uh, come across, when they're debating these types of atheists, there's atheists are going to say, many of them are going to say, well, you know, it comes up in the topic of faith, right. They're going to say, well, faith just is uh, blind belief, right? It's just, it's just believing uh, without evidence, believing without evidence or even in the face of counter evidence. And the, and the Christian comes along and says, well, no, that's, that's not the concept of faith found in the Bible. That's not the concept of faith in Christianity. The concept of faith in, Christ, in Christianity is not an act of the mind. It's an act of the will. It's placing your trust, placing your life in the hands of God. It's trusting in God and acting accordingly. It's an act of the will, right? It's a volitional act. It's not an act of the mind. And the, and the, so many atheists, I mean, look, how, look, it's still prevalent. No, well, no, faith just is belief without evidence. Sorry, now, now you know, you're, you're, you're believing that evidence. You're believing that evidence, right? Well, at that point, you just, you, you, can't, you can't have a conversation anymore. You're no longer dealing with the concepts uh, of the opposing side. You're no longer disambiguating between concepts. You're conflating concepts. You're adding uh, ambiguity, uh, and and you're really just creating straw men of your own making. You're just grasping at straws at that point. Well, thank you again for joining me here on this episode of the Freed Thinker Podcast. I know it was a little bit different format. I normally have these things written out and planned ahead. Uh, this one was a little bit more off the cuff uh, uh, because I was going to have a recording today, uh, but it would, that got pushed to to next weekend. So uh, next weekend I'll be recording uh, with Thomas from Atheistically Speaking for uh, his show on hermeneutics. Uh, so look forward to that. And then I'll be uh, recording uh, another uh, couple episodes, like I mentioned uh, on on Calvinism and Molinism and, and some other uh, areas uh, related to apologetics. So stick around for those. Uh, keep your eyes peeled for any new downloads. And thank you again for joining me. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, commendations, or condemnations, feel free to drop me a note. Send me an email at freedthinkerpodcast at gmail.com. Stop by the blog at freedthinkerpodcast.blogspot.com or visit us on Facebook at the Facebook group, The Freed Thinker Podcast. Thank you all again for joining us. Good night and God bless.